Welcome to The World We Got This Podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. As leaders met for the COP27 summit, the United Nations Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, warned, our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. So where are we in the climate crisis? Do we still have time to make a difference? Has the past year meant we've gone off course, too distracted by war and economic issues? Or has it created the evidence and momentum needed to make people prioritise action on environmental issues? My name is Julie Weldon, and in this episode, we will explore these questions and more to help determine whether or not we are at a pivotal moment in the climate crisis. We will hear from two academics in the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy. Professor Franz Burkout, a professor in geography, whose work encompasses the environment, technology, policy and climate change. He will outline some of the impacts of global warming that we're already seeing whether he thinks we'll be able to adapt to our new world, and where we are on progress against global commitments. We will also hear from Dr. Duray Jalili, co-director of the Environmental Security Research Group here at King's and a lecturer in our Defence Studies Department. He'll discuss ways in which environmental issues have already affected the geopolitical, economic and social order of our world, how the war in Ukraine has affected public focus on climate change, and whether we are at a critical moment in public and political understanding of the need to take action. Let's start by looking at current global commitments and where we are on them. The 2015 Paris Agreement set out the ambition to achieve net zero carbon emissions by the middle of this century and for average global temperatures to rise by no more than 1.5 to 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Professor Franz Burkout says current estimates are that we're about 1.1 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. So more than two-thirds of the way towards 1.5 and well over halfway to 2 degrees. He says even if we were to suddenly stop all carbon emissions, the climate system would still be reacting and continuing to warm for a number of decades from now, meaning there is only a slight chance of us hitting the 1.5 degree target and only a 50-50 chance of meeting the two-degree one. It's much more likely that, say, by the end of this century, we will see that temperatures have risen by more than two degrees and possibly by as much as 2.5 or even three degrees centigrade. So we are likely, very likely, I think, to overshoot targets set in the Paris Agreement in 2015. While two degrees might not sound a lot, It is in global terms, as Professor Burkhout explains. You know, that two degree target or the 1.5 degree target is really very difficult to understand for most of us. If we entered a room and we sat there for a while and the temperature went up by one and a half degrees, we would barely notice. But let me just put it into context. So the average mean temperature of the Earth's atmosphere measured in the way that we do this, you know, at a certain level above the ground and so on, is about 15.3 degrees centigrade, 15.3 today. So that mean temperature has been incredibly stable 
if you go back in history, for the last, certainly for the last 100,000 years, and probably for the last million years, it really hasn't varied very much at all. And it's those conditions between, let us say, 14 and 15 degrees centigrade, average across the whole world, for the last 100,000 and possibly a million years, that has been the context in which nature that we have has evolved and also human societies have developed. And what we're doing to that very, very stable climate system, which also involves the oceans, is perturbing it in a way that hasn't been seen probably for three million years. The climate, which has been very stable, is now on the move and will continue to be on the move in these multiple complex ways for decades and possibly centuries. So what human development is now doing is, you could say, conducting a huge global experiment with the global climate system. He says the impacts of climate change are multiple and vary across the planet. In fact, warming has happened at rates of between three and four degrees already in the Arctic regions. And it's beginning now really to warm in the Antarctic region, which is leading to all sorts of cracks and possible collapses of ice sheets there. So that's the first thing to say is that, in fact, you know, climate change doesn't happen at the same scale, at the same rate everywhere on Earth. It's very dependent on where you are. The second thing to say is that obviously it affects temperatures, but then it also affects, it drives all sorts of other things like storminess and how much it rains and all sorts of effects in nature. So that, you know, fish in the northern hemisphere are now tending to migrate further north as they try to look for the, the sea temperatures that they're used to. You have all sorts of migration of plants and animals, and in fact, disease vectors, things like mosquitoes that carry malaria, are also in the northern hemisphere traveling north as they seek the sort of climatic envelope that they're used to operating in. The absorption of carbon dioxide into oceans means that oceans are being acidified. So oceans, the water is typically slightly acidic. But as a result of it absorbing much more carbon dioxide, they're becoming more acidic. And this is affecting nature, the available coral reefs and, and, and fish stocks and so on. So we're now seeing these heat extremes and heat extremes were particularly dangerous this year in parts of uh, Pakistan and northern India, where you got to temperatures which actually become dangerous to people in the sense that the body can't cool off anymore and people get really ill. You can't be outside in those kinds of temperatures. So that's one thing. You just get more heat. But you also get more wetness, more rain. Because there's more energy in the atmosphere, it can contain more water, more water vapor, which then has to come down, fall down somewhere. So you, in fact, you get more rainfall in total, but also more of that rainfall tends to fall in intense rainfall events. You have the obverse as well. So parts of the world are being affected by more drought. So southern Europe, Spain, parts of southern Italy have been experiencing more droughts. As well as the effects on weather and nature, another way in which environmental changes are impacting our planet is on global security, as Dr. Duray Jalili explains. So obviously there are a number of environmental trends that can impact upon security, from flash flooding through to increased temperatures and so forth. 
they can have quite a few impacts from issues of food, water and resource scarcity through to mental and physical health or damage to personal property and critical national infrastructures. And obviously those negative impacts can compound wider issues such as direct or excess deaths, insecurity for one's livelihood, resource competition, social polarisation, issues of displacement and migration, and, and even threats to one's identity and heritage, let's say particularly for those island nations that might be potentially needing to move to an entirely new country or relocate completely. That comes with a significant threat to identity, heritage, a sense of self, a sense of connection and belonging. One way we can see the impact of the environment on the geopolitical and economic order of our world is around how we've exploited the Earth's resources. On a basic level, the exploitation of resources in local environments can have a significantly negative impact. You know, it can provide jobs and employment, but at the same point, the profit that comes from that extraction doesn't necessarily, or in fact, in the majority of instances, doesn't go back into those local communities. And even if it does produce local jobs, those jobs are of limited benefit to people because you're simultaneously destroying the local ecosystems upon which they've historically relied. So we see this across the world, from the Iraqi marshes to Brazil's Iron Quadrangle to China's energy and chemical industry base in northern Shanxi. You know, mining, for example, can require the wholesale clearing of biodiverse land and draining of water sources to enable operations. And it can result in second and third order effects, such as wildfires and droughts and soil erosion and landslides and the release of pollutants into local ecosystems. Now, these impacts obviously damage biodiversity and the health of local populations and can cause the displacement or erasure of sometimes centuries-old cultures and livelihoods. So the exploitation of resources can affect human and ecological security and in turn that can reduce national stability. He says there are some unhelpful narratives about how climate change will affect global security. These narratives can make us feel as if some kind of interstate conflict is inevitable or that we will devolve into some kind of Mad Max style scenario where we're all just fighting amongst each other for drops of water and so forth. And we don't really necessarily have the evidence to say that those things will come to fruition. Um, similarly, we also have evidence that some kinds of environmental impacts can actually positively increase cooperation amongst groups or amongst nations. For example, short-term major extreme weather events that can lead to significant amounts of migration can actually create strong community support for migrants. You know, they see that these people have been affected by a significant and extreme event and they rally around and they provide them with support and both food, water, shelter and moral support. Some have warned that we could also see conflicts caused by migration linked to climate change. He says while there is evidence around climate migration within states, questions still remain about the degree to which we will see mass migration between countries as the climate warms. And he points out there are challenges in defining climate migration. If you have slightly lower crop yields and so one of your children goes to work in a city in order to make a bit of extra money, is that climate migration or is that economic migration? If they then invest some of that money back into better irrigation systems 
and they move back because the crop yields are increasing. Is that climate migration or is that economic migration? Similarly, communities that seasonally migrate all the time due to climate, should we consider that to be a permanent form of climate migration? So I think there's a lot of difficulties, I think, in deciding even what constitutes migration in that sense. He also says it's important to understand that context will play a key role in the ways that climate change will affect security and conflict. Fighting between certain groups who are struggling for resources will be influenced by the level of corruption and the leadership of those groups, whether they have existing long-standing agreements for cooperation. And in addition to that, some of those environmental impacts might be unexpected. And he says we don't quite know how environmental changes will affect conflict and security. We can't necessarily turn around and say lots of rain will cause increased conflict because it will damage the amount of crop production. Because in fact, lots of rain might cause reduced conflict because people can't traverse over sodden land in order to have a conflict with someone. They're not able to mobilise if it's completely drenched. So there are a lot of I think assumptions and a lot of complexities that could be integrated better into that policy debate as well as that kind of general public sense. And I think particularly it's really important for us to move away from this narrative of saying it's absolutely inevitable. That can become a self-fulfilling narrative or can lead people to give up hope. I think it would be useful to have greater nuance within our kind of discourse. He thinks we will see shifts in who holds power and in our global priorities because of the climate emergency. But there is uncertainty in quite how that will play out. If you consider, for example, how petrostates have become globally dominant in terms of the amount of influence they're able to create through organisations such as OPEC by controlling oil prices, there are many academics who argue that we are going to see a similar shift towards what some have called electrostates, you know, so those states that maybe have resources such as tin, copper, cobalt, you know, etc., that are critical for increased electrification and things like battery storage. So what you have is the potential for certain nations with those resources to have increasing control and power because they will have potentially significant sovereign wealth funds that come from that extraction. And maybe they will be able to cohere into an organization such as OPEC that allows them to control global economic trends. But at the same time, it's not a guarantee. You also have the risk of those nations being taken advantage of, essentially destroying their economies because they become too reliant on certain resources or being taken advantage of by foreign nations, especially global powers. Similarly, if you look at China, in which you have the vast majority of, let's say, resource extraction and production of renewables or resource extraction that is enabling renewable production is coming from China. It's not necessarily because they have more abundant resource, it's because they have the infrastructures in place in order to be able to extract it more effectively at scale. And that has caused significant and beneficial economic boom for China. But at the same point, it has placed them in a position whereby they have been at risk of overproduction and they've had to reach out to international markets and they've had to ensure that they're able to maintain that demand is aligning with supply. Otherwise, they could significantly damage their economy. So there is a likely shift, certainly, in terms of who might hold power um, and who might be prioritised globally because of the climate emergency. 
and particularly because of that shift to resources for electrification. But how that will pan out in the long term is still to be decided. And do you think there are some serious security implications of these changes? There may be an evolution or a challenge to the international liberal order that comes through that shift in global priorities and shift in global power. If China is seeking to use its power to shift the criteria that are being used for human rights or economic liberalisation, then that will create tension with pre-existing powers such as the US. So I think that the security implications of this on a global level could be very significant in terms of that tension between nations, whether it comes down to the security of nuclear facilities or increases in local instability. Those are things that will have significant geopolitical and security impacts and will reshape global priorities in ways that we don't know yet. Professor Burkhout says the war in Ukraine could be seen as a symptom of the end times for the dominance of fossil energy, with Russia feeling vulnerable over losing its place and power in the world as people move away from its oil and gas. Similarly, he suggests the Gulf states have recently been asserting themselves, and this could be triggered over their worries for their future. They're very concerned about what their position might be in 20 or 30 years' time when actually much of the world has switched off its oil and gas demand. I do feel as though we are passing through a phase change, as it were, in our recognition of these as deep global challenges which need to be addressed and are reshaping the way capital flows, the way political power is distributed, the way we manage the international system and the way we run our economies and our households and and how we do things. And we are at that moment where we suddenly see the world in a different way and need to make some big changes. Now, that's also an interesting set of opportunities. I don't want to be gloomy about this because actually there are so many positive things that come from that as well. If we're less dependent on Russia for gas, that gives us more freedom. If we can eliminate the internal combustion engine from cars, that means we have better air quality in our cities. If we can think very carefully about global food systems in the time of climate change, we might find, and particularly the elimination of meat and so on, we might find actually that we're healthier and that food can be distributed more equally around uh, the world and we'll have, uh, we'll have less hunger. So there are all sorts of really positive prospects, actually, as we cope with this new climate-sensitive, climate-resilient world that we now see that we are entering. The last year has certainly involved some significant events that have affected people's lives around the planet, including the war in Ukraine, the economic crisis, extreme weather events such as flooding, droughts and fires. How has this affected public focus on climate change and progress on key commitments? The last year has been a tumultuous year in world politics. And obviously that's had an effect on the attention that there is for climate change as an issue. But in a way, it has only strengthened, it seems to me, uh, the case for working on climate change, both to reduce our dependence on fossil fuel-based energy globally, but also to attend to the effects of climate change. The war in Ukraine 
the incredible impacts that's had on energy markets, the availability of energy and energy prices, all energy, so not just gas and oil and coal, but also affecting the price that consumers are paying for nuclear and renewable energy, but also the experience of unprecedented heat waves in many parts of the world, unprecedented levels of flooding in parts of South Asia, all sorts of other impacts that have been predicted by the climate science, by the climate modelling. And now there's more and more observation, there's more evidence that these effects are happening. He says there have been concerns that as gas prices rose, people have focused on short-term interests, such as returning to using more coal, which had been in decline, particularly in Europe. I think that is probably a necessary short-term measure that they're doing. But in fact, on the other side, what you've seen is an acceleration of policies, but also investment in renewables, particularly in wind, but also in, in solar power. Huge projects now, particularly for offshore wind being developed. I think 2022 has been a really interesting year for climate change. Partly, perhaps it's been less a priority on the political agenda because other things have taken precedence. But actually, in the background, the drivers of the transition away from fossil fuels and governments and business and consumers and people thinking more carefully about the effects of climate change, that has been going on as well. So my sense is that we'll see more years like this in the future, which are complex, but the underlying change is still absolutely and perhaps in a more intensified way towards you know, dealing with the climate problem. For Dr. Jalili too, the events since the Russian invasion of Ukraine have had an interesting impact on public awareness around climate issues. A really interesting component of the impact of the war in Ukraine is the fact that we've actually seen discussion around climate priorities fed into the media reporting on that war, which even five years ago would have really been broadly unthinkable. And you saw towards the start of the war, uh, leading Ukrainian scientist Dr. Svetlana Krakowska turn around and say, we need to avoid taking our eye off the ball of climate change due to this urgent and critical issue of Russia's invasion. But even whilst she was sitting there, you know, I think in her apartment in Kiev with artillery raining down, this scientist was saying, we can't forget that climate is really the key issue. And voices like that being featured is already itself a major shift in the public focus on climate change. When an event such as this happens, and when we can link it back to climate issues, the fact that we're facing a cost of living crisis can be relatively clearly linked back to the fact that we haven't diversified our energy delivery as well as we could have, and that we haven't created these maybe decentralised and renewable energy systems that could have helped at least in the short term make up for some of those shortfalls. And so it's possible to link the Ukraine war and energy supply back to those arguments. We've seen an initial swing from the Ukraine war to turn around and say we should have invested in renewables, but that was very quickly countered 
by a countering swing from political officials, from energy officials to turn around and say, this is not the time to invest in renewables. This is a time to double down on oil and gas because it's the fastest way of making up for this shortfall and we should just delay renewables a certain amount. So that ability to create a narrative that supports either side of the argument is unfortunately very strong. Given the events of 2022, he says many security practitioners assume Russia will have less power in the world because we won't be using all of its oil and gas. However, we also need to consider that as the permafrost melts and opens up new reserves and even agricultural land to Russia, it could offer new ways for it to wield power. Although he stressed there are still many variables that make it uncertain whether that would be the case. So while the public debates continue about the future challenges and the world deals with the immediate crises we are all facing, what does this mean for the climate change emergency? Are we at a pivotal moment? Here's Professor Burkhout. My sense is that we are actually at a pivotal moment in the whole climate change debate and the whole transition towards uh, zero carbon, which the world is now politically committed to. We're at a pivotal moment in that transition away from fossil energy. That transition has been going on already for several decades. We started in many parts of the world, not just the wealthy parts of the world, but, but other parts of the world. The largest market for wind and solar is China. India has a huge program as well, and so on. This replacement of fossil energy, coal, gas, oil, by particularly electricity, has been going on now for at least two decades and longer. The current period, with these very high energy prices, and also the realisation amongst major oil and gas producers and gas and oil companies, that they're now in the end stage of the period of fossil energy dominance, is changing all sorts of attitudes and changes markets, changes how capital flows. One of the interesting things about renewable energy is that it exists everywhere, more or less evenly distributed. It blows a bit more in the North Sea, but the wind blows in Nepal and it blows in South Africa and it blows in Burundi and, and in Brazil, more or less in the same way. And if you don't have wind, you've got sun. And so where the global political system, economic system has been structured around oil and gas. It's been oil and gas producers, the Gulf states, the Middle East, Russia, the United States, uh, and so on, who've been dominant in that system. Their power will gradually wane because their, you know, their economic dominance and their political power as a result will also come to be reshaped. As there's more autonomy in the production and use of energy, of electricity particularly, in every country around the world, we all have wind and sun. Now, that is a very profound reconfiguration of political and economic power in the world. I don't think we've quite understood at all really what that means for the global political economic system, but it is a very deep change that is happening. Dr Jalili agrees we are at a crucial moment. I think we are at a pivotal time in the climate emergency, but I think we've been at a pivotal time in the climate emergency for the last 50 years, in a sense. 
in the way that people will say action needs to be taken yesterday. That has been the case for quite some time. So what that means is that every moment is critical and the need for genuine, far-reaching systemic change is critical. The climate will result in any number of different fallouts and security impacts. You know, it is liable to make global pandemics far more frequent. It is liable to increase the number of excess deaths that we have from extremes of heat or from extreme weather. We need to make sure that we're focusing on the cause rather than the symptom. So we are in a pivotal time, definitely, and we're going to remain in a pivotal time for the foreseeable future. So I think one thing that we need to do is to make sure that we're both making it clear that this is a pivotal time, but we're managing to stretch that clarity across the next 10 to 15 plus years so that people don't get tired of it and say, well, I thought five years ago was the pivotal time. I think a critical thing is to maintain that pressure and maintain that focus. We need significant binding governance and compliance systems. We need significant behavioural change. We need significant investment in climate funds for disenfranchised nations. We have agreements on a lot of these things, but we don't have follow-ups to those agreements. So on a, on a basic level, as a priority, we need to fulfil the existing agreements that we have. That is a very simple reality. For me, it comes down to people trying to get that diversity of perspective and that questioning of our current systems of governance, our current economic systems, our current agricultural systems, and to be able to integrate that within thinking at the highest levels. Because we can and should prepare future generations and disenfranchised groups with the tools that they need to be able to be resilient to those global shocks and Fundamentally, we're likely to see a greater need for decentralised resilience amongst local communities, particularly when governments are either failing or are not able to respond in sufficient time. Preparing for the challenges that lie ahead is something that Professor Burkhardt has looked at in his work. So is adaptation possible and are there limits to our ability to cope with what is coming? As climate changes, we will adapt and we are adapting. Everywhere on Earth, the climates that people are habituated to will change, are changing. And as they change, it becomes warmer and wetter and windier and so on. We make all sorts of adjustments where in general, it'll be easier to make for rich people with access to resources to adjust than people who are relatively poorer with fewer resources. But even there, a lot of adjustment goes on. He highlights how already farmers during times of drought alter their behaviours, for example, changing the crops they plant or how they use their land, selling livestock, seeking other employment or moving temporarily to urban areas. Similarly, people in areas that flood might take steps to protect their homes and valuables. But he stresses there are not an infinite number of options available. We all have strategies and options to adapt to the changing climate, changing weather conditions. And we can deploy more and more of those. We can build higher seawalls or we can start planting drought-resistant crops. But, you know, if your building is in a coastal area which is being flooded, not every once every 100 years, but say is being flooded once every 10 years or maybe even once every three years, and you can't insure it anymore because the insurer has walked away, at some point you have to ask the question, can I still afford to live here? And particularly if I can't sell my house to anyone because no one wants to buy a house which is uninsurable. 
and that leads to quite dramatic development. So, you know, you might get what's known as, you know, managed retreat. You might say at some stage, look, the, the council decides, actually, we can't defend this anymore. These houses are uninsurable and we're going to now allow it to flood naturally and this community is going to have to move. And that sort of thing, land abandonment by farmers who can't actually you know, irrigate anymore, or can't find crops that uh, are heat resistant and so on. These kinds of effects you're also beginning to see all around the world. And as climate change intensifies, those limits to adaptation will be approached more frequently around the world with cascading effects through world systems. Uh, my own sense is that we don't really know very much at all about what our limits might be in different places to adaptation to climate change impacts. And it's really an urgent uh, area of, of new research and also policy intervention, because we know that those who suffer the worst impacts have the least capacity to adjust. So you know, there is an international and, and national public policy element to this, which governments aren't really switched on to yet, but they need to be. So how hopeful are they that society will realise this is a pivotal moment in the climate crisis and take the actions needed? Also, what can we do to play our part? Here's Dr Jalili. I got into climate security research probably for the same reasons that a lot of other people did. I was doom scrolling articles about how everything is terrible and we're all going to be living off potatoes and potatoes alone in five years time. And the more that I've researched into the field, the more hopeful that I do feel about society being able to adapt to some of these challenges that we face. I think there's some really important points being made by creative thinkers out there, such as, you know, if all that we faced was extreme weather um, and increased temperatures, then we wouldn't necessarily be in too bad a position. We'd be able to move people away from the worst affected areas. So the problem is that those issues of extreme weather, increased temperatures and so forth, they interact and they catalyze wider challenges that we face. You know, they catalyze existing poverty. They catalyze existing deficits in our health infrastructures. They catalyze existing food insecurities that come from our monocultural crop production system. So what that means is that any action that anyone takes helps. Uh, you don't necessarily need to be a climate champion in order to help with the climate crisis. You know, if you're contributing to local community food growing schemes or food banks, then you're helping. You know, if you're supporting campaigns for the rights of disenfranchised groups or advocating for reforms in a specific company or sector or set of laws, you're helping because, you know, you're shoring up that societal resilience and cohesion to the impacts of climate change. And most importantly, think about how your specific skills and circumstances can enable you to achieve more targeted impact. If you're on a good wage, then you can probably achieve more by using that money to to give to reforestation initiatives, advocacy groups, ethical banks, and so forth, versus if you were to give up your job and volunteer for those activities yourself. You know, if you're a logistician or accountant or a coder or an artist, then use that expertise to achieve impact. Some of the most significant changes may not come from something that is directly related to climate action at all. We might see a shift in food technology, 
that significantly changes the risks that are being faced due to the climate crisis. So I would say that what can we all do to play our part? Just do something. I would say the main thing that from a security perspective, people can do to play their part as well is to avoid participating within the kind of narratives that create social polarization. That's one of the greatest risks that we face in terms of the climate crisis, because it is eroding our ability to respond. And in fact, when you look at some of the research that's coming out of the King's Policy Institute, you can see that different generations are actually coming to similar conclusions about the threats that we face. They're coming from a different position initially, but we're all moving towards the same conclusion. So potentially the best thing that we can do to play our part is not just supporting whatever particular cause we think needs supporting, but also making sure that when we do engage in conversations with others, including those that have opinions that are far different to our own, that we don't automatically jump into assuming that they are somehow inherently malign or self-serving, rather than perhaps that they're scared or are dealing with more immediate threats or are feeling victimised or have been targeted by disinformation campaigns. By making that assumption, we feed into the problem itself. And the more that we're able to have instructive dialogue, and the more that we're able to genuinely try to understand the perspectives of the communities around us and people across the world, the more that we'll be able to create those mutually supporting communities that are integral to being able to not just adapt to these issues, but to driving forwards mitigation. Professor Burkout is also feeling hopeful. Societies are incredibly inventive. Whether we achieve 1.5 or 2 degrees is still a big question. We will end up with, as it were, the climate we deserve. That is the climate for which we have made the changes as rapidly or not as, as we've, we've been able to do. I think there's a lot of hope, actually, in the rate of change now towards renewables around the world. And we may very well nearly achieve net zero by the middle of the century. It may be more into the 2070s. We will have some overshoot, but we are very, very powerfully on the way. And what's happened in 2022 has only emphasised the need to get away from fossil energy. In terms of impacts, I, you know, I fear that there, there will be all sorts of climate-related catastrophes along the way, and we need to equip ourselves. We are beginning to do that, but we really need to equip ourselves and the people on the ground who are suffering these impacts to deal with them and to rearrange our societies to cope with a very, very changed climate um, by the mid-century, by, certainly by the end of this century. But we're very capable, dynamic societies and economies, and the signals now are very clear. And I do believe that many of these adjustments will happen, but it will be a completely different world that we live in. And we need to recognise that. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series. 